to another episode of the Nerd By Word podcast. This is Dave, I'm here with Chris, and we have a very special episode for you today. We are going to have an interview with comic book writer Jason Douglas here in just a few minutes. But before we get to our big talk for this episode, let's go ahead and start off with some nerd news. Chris, what do you have for us? I promise you that this is a new story, Dave. The, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are getting rebooted again. Is it, yeah. is it just um, another Tuesday or something? <laughs> it's another day that ends in Y, that's for sure. <laughs> um, so, um, we are getting another Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movie, but it's going to be animated. And this is the first um, CG theatrical production since 2007's TMNT, which was okay, if memory serves. I haven't seen it since then. Um, some interesting things that I saw in this article, I'm reading um, Jamie Levette's article on comicbook.com. Uh, Nickelodeon is, of course, uh, you know, the, the group releasing it. They're working with Point Grey Pictures, um, and the big name that you would recognize from Point Grey, uh, Point Grey Pictures is Seth Rogen himself. So that's interesting to me. So I've always been a fan of his work, his comedic uh, humor, you know, whatever. His work is, is always landed pretty well with me. So I'm interested to see what goes there. But uh, also tied to that project are Evan Goldberg um, and James Weaver as the producer. Um, uh, the director is Jeff Rowe. Uh, known for his work on Gravity Falls, which I have not watched, but I've heard great things about, and that's really, really funny for all ages, and um, Connected. Um, the writer of the script uh, is going to be Brendan O'Brien, and he's done work on Neighbors, Sorority Rising, and Mike and Dave Need Wedding Dates, which are pr pretty mature films, if, if I understand that correctly. So I'm interested to see where this goes. Um... I was sad to learn in reading this article that um, live action films um, of the Ninja Turtles are still planned out with Michael Bay. So I was not happy to see that, um, but I guess that's that's still um, in the works as well. Um, so very interesting stuff. Um, TMNT has been, you know, I referenced this in our, our first episode. It's been like my first thing that I fell in love with that, that was considered nerdy. So I followed it throughout the years. Um, uh, so I, I love the first two live action films, secret of the ooze. I know is, a, is dogged a little bit, but it's my personal favorite. Um, three was three was okay. Um, but I, I really dug my kids got into the 2012 series that just ended on, on Nickelodeon. I really thought that that was a really fun one. Um, I haven't seen Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I know that it, it made some headlines with 
with some of the changes and the team dynamic and, and things like that. But I haven't checked that one out yet. But, um, yeah. So, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is getting yet another story. Dave, what do you think? Well, you know, on the one hand, more TMNT is good by me. Uh, it's one of my favorite franchises as well. Uh, you might remember a few episodes ago, I highly recommended the IDW TMNT series. I think it's one of the best things on the stands right now as far as comic books go. So, a uh, big fan there. Now, I noticed looking at the press release that this uh, was put out along with this story that uh, there's a lot of focus in the press release on, oh, you know, we have Seth Rogen's production company and it's going to be very, very humorous. And, you know, that it seemed to be very much focused on humor. And I think TMNT is best when you play it straight with a layer of humor that comes naturally from some of the character interactions. It should not be first and foremost a comedy. Now, I don't think Seth Rogen being involved necessarily means it's going to be a comedy. If I remember correctly, his production company was also involved with the new Halloween movie from a couple of years ago, as well as the Preacher TV series on AMC. Neither one of those were primarily comedies. Um, but the press release seemed to very much harp on the notion of, of humor. Um, so I don't think Seth Rogen's involvement necessarily telegraphs that this TMNT reboot is a comedy. I'm cautiously optimistic because that production company has done some good work. Uh, the Preacher TV show was a decent adaptation in parts, um, and the new Halloween movie was quite good. So uh, I'm cautiously optimistic. I will say the sooner we can get away from the Michael Bay Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles universe, uh, the better. We just, it, I think before we started recording, I referred to it as nasty. Uh, these <laughs> these character designs for the TMNT are not very good. Uh, the writing hasn't been particularly sharp. Uh, and it really, in a lot of ways, doesn't quite feel like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So here's hoping that this animated feature will do well. And with a little luck, it will lead to a new direction in the live-action franchise as well. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. And I'm reading that IDW series on your recommendation. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. I'm, I'm reading it on uh, Comixology Unlimited. I think I'm on like the third or fourth volume that's been collected. So I'm thoroughly enjoying that and, and can't wait to, you know, binge all the way up to current because there's some exciting things that I've seen. But um, I, I totally agree with you on the on the outlook on this um i'm hoping as well um my my tastes have kind of been altered in recent years being a new fan of like uh the clone wars and star wars rebels and stuff and opening myself up i was kind of closed-minded but when i opened myself up i thoroughly enjoyed those so i'm much more open to animated things um and as far as the michael bay films go i mean what else can we say um I think we touched on this two episodes ago when we talked about, you know, source, source material not necessarily being a be-all, end-all, but when you lose the core of what the characters are, I feel like that's where you go by the wayside. And I truly feel like, you know, the, the creative team behind those films completely does not understand. You know, they put Megan Fox as April O'Neil, and um, it just, it's an absolute dud for me, so... Um, as someone who is truly passionate about this, I'm, I'm optimistic about this, this new feature, as you said, you know, he's done some serious stuff as well. And, you know, I've, I've heard good things about it. So I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful, um, 
about about what we're going to see. Just not the Michael Bay stuff, please. Just just no more. No more. Enough. Um, Dave, what's your nerd, nerd, uh, nerd news story for this week? Yeah, so Ash Parrish at uh, gaming website Kotaku uh, had an interesting report uh, earlier this morning. Uh, so this kind of deals with the uh, upcoming uh, video game generation that'll kick off with the PlayStation 5 and the Xbox Series X later this year. NBA 2K21 is uh, now available for pre-order, and it is a cross-generational game, uh, which means that there will be a version of this game released on current-gen consoles, PS4 and Xbox uh, One, and there will also be uh, a next-gen version. What's interesting, though, and unlike uh, when you had cross-generational games in the past, the next-gen standard version of the game is going to be released with a suggested retail price of $69.99, which is a $10 jump from the standard $59.99 for most AAA games. The Xbox One and PlayStation 4 versions are going to be released at the standard $59.99. So now a lot of people in the gaming community are speculating that this is our first hint that in the next generation of video games, the long-threatened rise in prices on games is going to finally come along. Price has long been a point of contention in the gaming in, uh, industry. Developers cite rising uh, development costs as a reason that prices should be raised, and a lot of publishers argue the whole reason we have DLC and microtransactions is because games are so expensive to develop, and keeping the price at $60 is unrealistic. So... Uh, on the one hand, I understand the necessity for a price increase if costs are rising on the game development side. On the other hand, the next generation is already looking to be pretty expensive, and a permanent increase on, on games, a new standard of $70, might be a road too far for many gamers. I know that I plan on uh, purchasing games primarily on the used market, or digitally when it gets a really steep discount, even if that means that I have to wait maybe a year or more before I play some of the games that I'm interested in playing. Uh, ultimately, I would caution the gaming industry to be extremely careful with this, because uh, if they price these kinds of things too high, it will, it will ultimately affect their bottom line. And I do have the sinking feeling, and, and you can correct me if you disagree with this, Chris, just because they're planning on raising prices on games does not mean that microtransactions are going anywhere. Uh, I, I think a lot of publishers have come to rely on those as an uh, important income stream in their strategy. So it looks like we might uh, be paying more for games to begin with, in addition to downloadable content being released separately, and microtransactions. Uh, Chris, what's your thoughts on this? Yeah, this this is really troubling for me, because I rely, I've you know, said this in previous episodes, and you just hinted at it, I rely on those deep digital discount um, you know, sales. Um, you know, Microsoft has one going on right now with some games up to 80% off this week. Um, so I heavily rely on that and I had no qualms about buying an all digital Xbox one as my second unit for, you know, my personal use. Um, so when I can get stuff for that cheap, um, you know, that's what I rely on is, is being the head of household for a very large family. Um, you know, that makes me a little bit uneasy. 
Um, especially as, as you said, with like these, you know, uh, I, I've got a bunch of my own children that are Fortnite crazy. And every time they release a new season, every one of them on their own personal account needs a new battle pass or wants a new skin or wants V bucks or something like that. So there, I, uh, I understand, I guess, in a sense where they're coming from, but I find it very, very hard to believe that the video game sales are not a very lucrative thing already when you have so much content out there. Um, I know that my household, they're getting a large chunk of change. Um, now, one thing that gives me hope is I did see a report that um, Xbox is thinking about producing uh, an S version of the new console that will be you know, uh, similar to the Xbox One S, which I have two of, you know, and will be at a lower price point, uh, but won't have all the fancy schmancy features, which I, which I said, uh, I think it was last episode that, you know, don't really concern me because I have a standard television that I play them on. So, um, so that gives me hope if they do indeed release an S version of, you know, the new console, then that gives me hope, but uh, uptick in game prices, uh, not so much. Yeah, and ultimately, I know uh, as far as like graphical fidelity and all this, you know that 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 takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of cash to develop those kinds of games. On the flip side, though, if you re- release a game like, for example, um, The Witcher Three, which literally has hundreds of hours of content, now I can see you know paying a little bit more for something like that that's literally going to keep mm-hmm. you busy for the for the next 2 years or something if you're a fairly busy person whereas you're right. looking at a standard triple a release which might have you know 20 to 30 hours of gameplay and you want me to shell out 70 dollars for that i don't think the value is there necessarily for that which is why you know like i said primarily i i do used discs and and steep digital discounts and i think i'm going to continue to do that which is regrettable because I think there's been already some games shown that I would have a um, a strong interest in, in getting, you know, when they first release. I know the sequel for Horizon Zero Dawn is, is high up on my list of games that I just can't wait to play. But if it's going to release at $70, I will be waiting for that price to drop or until I can get a used copy at a, at a discount. So I, I, that's just where I'm at with, with the gaming uh, situation. I'll tell you who loves a story like this is Gamefly, where, you know, if, if they can keep their prices and I can rent a game. Um, I, I did Redbox. I Redbox rent or, or Redbox. Like I rented um, Fallen Order. I had beat it in two days. I had a weekend to myself um, and I, I played Fallen Order and beat the campaign in two days. And it's still even with discounts on the digital uh, Microsoft uh, Microsoft Digital Store, it's still $39, you know, and I was like, you know, I'm usually a 100% or completionist, but I'm not paying $39 just to go get some, you know, unlock some kits and find, you know, an extra poncho or something like that. So if you're going to charge $70 for a new game that I can beat in a couple of days, I might look at, a, you know, at other options. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Well, that is it for the nerd news segment uh, for our current episode. Uh, Stick around after the break. We are going to be talking to comic book writer Jason Douglas about his new book, Parallel. All right, uh, we are here uh, with 
Jason Douglas, writer of the comic uh, graphic Very novel really Parallel. All right, Jason, so tell us what got you interested in writing comic books to start with. So this gentleman has been um, kind of a lifelong dream, but it was uh, very similar to some of the themes in the book um, on the back burner for a long, long, long time. I came to actually writing this script, you know, taking that leap and writing my very first comic book um, kind of in a very roundabout fashion. Uh, comics came first for me, right? I was the fan as a kid. And even though I took my my middle teen and early 20s break from from reading and collecting comics, um, it was always the thing that I wanted to do. It was always a thing that was kind of just there in the back or closer to the front of my brain. But I started writing plays first. And that came through my day job of being a public school teacher for the last 20 years and starting a drama club in the elementary school that I taught at and then at the middle school that I taught at. And I started writing plays and I started writing skits for young people and got a couple things published. And one summer when I took a break from writing a new play, it was like, well, I, I think this is something I can do. And this is something that I've always wanted to do. And um, and I've said this before, but I had this kind of blissful ignorance, you know, where I didn't I didn't know how hard or how different writing a comic script would be or was going to be than than writing a play, um, something for the stage. And so I just took that leap because it was always there as a desire and um, tried it one summer. And I wrote the first half of Parallel. I wrote the first 32 pages of this uh, this story that eventually became the 64 page one shot. And um, like without the reference, without the um, frame of reference, I should say, on, on how you do it or what happens after you do it, mm -hmm. um, you know, with that kind of blissful ignorance, as I say, like not knowing it was going to be hard, not knowing that you know, I might not be able to do it. I just did it. Uh, kind of latching on to the childhood dream, um, piggybacking on this other thing that I knew I could do. And then it, it, it turned into this. Had I known a lot more than that I know now, had I known then what I know now, I don't know. I don't know if I would have been able to pull it off. But um, that's kind of how it started. And that's where the, the genesis of writing this script, at least from like a, an origin standpoint of like why I thought I could do it and and how long I've wanted to do it comes from. It's absolutely hilarious that you mentioned being a middle school teacher because uh, you're right now talking to two other middle school teachers. So Yes! <laughs> All right! The fraternity! Gentlemen, Gentlemen uh, we need to form a club. I love it! Yeah, so it's just a whole bunch of middle school teachers hanging out talking about comic books. So what, what are your biggest influences as a writer, do you think? I read a lot and always have, right? Um... My childhood was split almost evenly between two things, and that would be staying inside, playing Star Wars and reading, and going outside and like living in the woods from dusk till dawn, like building forts and traps so other people couldn't come by and steal our destroy our fort. And so a lot, a lot of reading, a lot of reading, and eventually I got into comics and a lot of reading comics. So there's, 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 I think there's that like through osmosis or that subconscious influence of, of tons of writers and tons of different styles and things like that when you don't even know it. But I do know, I can, I can name, um, straight up what, while it's not necessarily a stylistic thing, definitely my biggest influence, uh, from a writerly perspective comes from Neil Gaiman who is a master of all kinds of, kinds of different writing, but, you know, got mostly got his start, or at least got famous in comics. 
Um, I kind of had, I had the honor of meeting him twice. Uh, and at the first meeting, I actually got to talk to him. This is when I was an elementary school teacher and, 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 and our, my kids were, we would listen to Coraline on CD by candlelight at the end of the year. It was like a big end of the year kind of celebration. He loved that. My kids wrote him letters. He wrote back, signed a bunch of stuff for us. And, um, one of the things he told me, and I know he said this publicly a bunch of times as well, um, which is really just an inspiration for, I think your first question, which is like getting started and, and doing this thing that was a little bit scary or could have been a little bit daunting had I thought about it differently. Um, he always gives advice to new writers. He says, like, the way you write a novel is you write a novel, right? The way you write a comic is you, you write a comic. And he doesn't make any promises of, of if it's going to be good or not. But, like, what he does say that I kind of like, and he has a much better turn of phrase for it, is if you don't write it, then it doesn't exist, Right? Uh, and if you do, I mean, there's no promises of what comes next, but at least it exists. And at least you have taken that, that big, huge first step forward. And so like, that's always been, that's always hung over my brain. And like, when he told me that face to face, that was long before I got the courage to take that first step myself, but, um, never left me. And it's always been like that, that kind of advice or that kind of, uh, uh, it's always been on my mind since then. And I would say he's probably the biggest influence in a lot of ways, but like I was, uh, I, I'm one of those, I'm one of those people who it doesn't matter. Like the things that I love, like pop culture wise, whether it be movies or music or comics or whatever, I'm one of those people who the first thing I fall in love with will always be my favorite. Right. You know what I mean? So like, so like I know the Beatles are the greatest band that has ever lived. But I got to Led Zeppelin first, so they are my favorite band, right? Um, I know that there are better movies than Empire Strikes Back in the universe. But because that was my first love, it will always be the best movie in the universe. And as far as writing goes, are there technically better writers than Stephen King out there? Of course there are. But I found the dude first, and so he will always be my favorite writer. Again, not necessarily a lot of stylistic input, but definitely if, if you're talking about like you know, something that soaks into you and, and you're doing it subconsciously in your own writing, it's gotta be him because I've read the most Stephen King out of anybody I've ever read. So, um, those two are definitely like my, my two biggest literary heroes, uh, and, and have the influence at least in that respect. Um, right now in the comic industry, I will follow Jeff Lemire to the ends of the earth and, uh, read anything that that guy writes. Absolutely. You said the magic words, which are Stephen and King. So yes! uh, we, we better keep moving forward before this devolves into the are Stephen we gonna get, King are we gonna podcast. Are we going to talk about how, how my, I dipped my toe in with Eyes of the Dragon when I was 12? And I was like, oh, that was great. That was fun. And then I read uh, in the second half of being 12 years old, I read It, which is regards to the fact that the characters are 12 years old for half the book is drastically inappropriate for a 12 year old to read <laughs> absolutely and sleep well for for six months that's my stephen king origin story which is ridiculous yeah for me it was pet cemetery that was the first one i oh, got a hold of oh stop, stop i did I not can't. sleep I well at oh. 10 no that that was a mess <laughs> <laughs> all right uh jason now comics are notoriously difficult to break into especially for writers um what was your big break how how did you get to this point where you're getting a, a one shot published here. So this is another, you know what, this ties in really nicely with the idea of coming from, at least on the profession side, coming from a place with no frame of reference, 
right? Mm-hmm. Uh, again, had I known now what, you know, what I knew, or had I known then what I do know now about the difficulty of that, I, I again, so daunting, a little bit scary. I don't know if I would have been put off by it. So like I told you, I wrote that first 32 pages, right? I wrote that first 30 pages kind of like in a bubble, right? Where, where this ignorance bubble surrounded me just saying, I, you know, I, I sat there in the summer. There was no, there was no publisher attached. There was no plans attached. It was just like, I'm going to see if I can tell this story, uh, in a medium I love, but not one structurally that I've ever tried before. Right. So I do that and I get to this halfway point in the book and before I type another page, before I start exploring what comes next, I'm like, okay, well, now it's time to start poking a little bit and, and trying to see w- what is the possibility of what can come next. And what I discovered, you know, I, I think it was tw- it's the 21st century. So the first thing you do is you, of course, go online and you start poking around and seeing what you can see. And what I found was less than encouraging, right? Um, if I looked up 30 different publishers, 29 of them did not accept unsolicited pitches. And for the few that did, they certainly don't want your script, right? They most likely want art. And if they want any words at all, it's maybe a pitch, maybe a couple of pages with art attached. Not something I was capable of doing unless you want uh, horrible, horrible renditions that would really demean whatever words I had typed because of (laughs) my lack of artistic talent. And but again, not know you know that was just the first poke. Not knowing that that is the norm, just knowing that that's the first roadblock I hit, I didn't quite give up. And so what I did instead is I kind of regressed to what I knew how to do, which is, I mean, you guys as educators know that um, as advanced as some schools can be uh, technology-wise, we're always several decades behind on most cutting-edge everything, right? We're a bit <laughs> yeah. archaic. I resisted like like 15 years ago. I resisted getting a whiteboard in my classroom because I was like, no, there's nothing wrong with my chalkboard. Forget mm-hmm. about a smartboard. I like the chalkboard. Um, and so what I did, knowing that Motor City Comic Con was coming up fairly soon, right? That was in a May, in a May a couple of years ago. I went into my classroom and grabbed <laughs> grabbed the file folder, the Manila folder. Uh, typed up the, the pitch and the cover letter and put the script in and put, you know, all the things that you would put, um, you know, partly what I researched about how you pitch a comic script, but apparently not in the 21st century, uh, partly how you would apply for a job in previous decades, put the colored paper clips straight out of my desk on the thing. And I took it to Motor City and I kind of walked around and like, you know, here's a small publisher, here's a small publisher. And, you know, Kismet, karmic, whatever, dumb luck, right? Ignorance allowing me to just stri- stride right up to the first beautiful booth I saw, which was Source Point Press. Gorgeous booth, walk up, walk right up to the person who catches my eye first, because not because I knew that he was the co founder, editor in chief, and president of Source Point Press, but because Travis McIntyre has the most glorious, big, bushy red beard. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that looks like a cool guy. And I walk right up to the co-founder and I'm like, hello. And I hand him this 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 packet and you could see the kind of confusion on his face. And then he like looks at it and like he gets a smirk on his face. And I'm just, you know, I'm not standing there. It's not, it's not like, it's not 
fake smugness. It's not fake confidence. It's literally, uh, merely the confidence of ignorance, right? Merely that confidence of, I don't know, this is not how you do it. <laughs> and he's like, I like the cut of your jib, though I do think you're trying to uh, uh, trying to pitch me a comic as if this were 1971. Because, like, you know, he, like, saw the paper clips and it's like, what is this? <laughs> but but he, he glanced at it. He liked it. He's like, you know, you come back tomorrow. I'm going to read this tonight and we'll talk. And I came back tomorrow and against the odds of how this works in the industry, right? This is not me doing a Kickstarter. This is not me struggling in that self-publishing thing for a decade before. This is me through a little bit of dumb luck, through ignorance, but 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 with a pure heart about it too. This you know, it wasn't I wasn't trying to cut a corner. I didn't know better. And the product was of a sort where he was like, I like this. Um, can you go home? and write me the second half, you know, in my head, because I come up as a comic fan, I saw issues and he's like, no, this is a one shot. Uh, it's 64 pages. Can you go home and write me another 32 pages? And I lied and said, yes, of course I can. Um, <laughs> not knowing if I could or couldn't, I did that thing. You, you know, that Hollywood cliche about like, can you ride a horse? And the, the, the actor is like, yes, I can ride a horse. They've never even seen a horse and then to get the job. That's exactly how I answered that question. Yes, of course I can write you a 64 page comic. I will get right on that, sir. And, and so like, like my origin for this is, I mean, it, it's, it's, I love it. it it's so, it, it's so lucky, but, but I've been told to be careful about that because it, it's not like I stumbled into it without putting in a lot of effort to craft a story that, that sold. Do you know what I mean? I don't want to, mm -hmm. like the dumb luck part of it undersells the fact that I worked my butt off up to that point and then worked my butt off maybe five times that hard from that day till today, till the actual, you know, the point where it's in comic book stores. So I don't want to sell that short, but it's also not the typical way that this gets done. And in that respect, I will not back away from the fact that I am very, very fortunate and lucky to have it play out this way. Absolutely. That's, I have to say that, that, that took some guts to just walk, walk up to a publisher and hand <laughs> but, them but, that. But like I said, but like I said, I think I'm not... <laughs> So, so I consider myself um, an extroverted introvert, right? Like mm -hmm. if I, if I make the choice, um, you know, be, be, before I started writing plays, I did a couple of years where I was like doing community theater, right? When I was like the first couple of years teaching and you could put me on stage in front of 500 people, uh, at, like at a sold out show and I, I've got. 500 lines and, and on stage for an hour and a half. And I, it, and you know, stage fright, yes, nerves beforehand, but once I'm on stage, no problem. You catch me off guard and say at a party and say, uh, go talk to that stranger. And it's not a choice I made. You might see me curled up in the corner in a ball <laughs> saying, take me home, take me home. Um, and my point of telling you that is like, had I known who I was about to go talk to, had I known that that is not the way you do it. And, and 99 times out of 100, you're probably going to get rejected. I doubt I would have had the courage to even approach it. Approaching the big boss of SourcePoint Press, from there moving right. forward, what was it like to actually uh, work with a small publisher like SourcePoint Press? It has been amazing. So I, I think along this process, and it's been a long one, and you know what, that's one of the most eye-opening things about this whole thing is that 
I've been looking at this from day one. Once I step out of the bubble that I was in, where I was in that bubble, writing that first 32 pages, where, where I am just cut off from the world. This has nothing to do with actual publishing comics at all. This is just a story I'm trying to tell, right? The minute I step out of that bubble, I have gotten this, this gift, this treat of being able to really, really satisfy the fanboy in me. Because like what I'm getting to do is like, like my fandom has not dis- diminished one iota in the last couple of years. The thing that's changed is um, as I'm still loving comics, as I'm still reading a ton of comics, I get to actually see the sausage getting made. I get to see the backstage process go along with front row seat and, and, you know, as my stuff is getting produced. So as soon as like that stuff kicking the gear, as soon as, as Travis said, well, I've got an artist in mind. Right. And that artem, uh, that artist is Adam Ferris. He is up and coming. He's very talented. He's going to send you some character sketches, a couple of page layout things just as a test or whatever. Like as soon as that happens, I'm like, oh, that's something that happens in comics. Right. When the writer <laughs> and the artist meet. And, and it wasn't so much like like as thrilled as I was that the the, the art that came back was of this character I had envisioned Landon in, in parallel. I was just as excited that I got to see that thing that I read about in the back matter of like my favorite trades, like what, like when Ed Brubaker says something in the back of a trade says like, and then I got, you know, and then Michael Lark sent me the thing and I was like, Oh God, I'm getting to experience that. Um, and then source point specifically, it's amazing because source point, as far as indie publishers go uh, in the last couple of years have, they've blown up, right. They've gone from a power on uh, the convention circuit for, for, uh, for quite some years and then, you know, busted out into previews and are putting out nine to 10 books a month in previews and winning awards and expanding rapidly and different departments and stuff. And yet because of their origin is a very tight knit family, that dynamic remains. So uh, one of the most amazing things about this whole process has been like being part of that source point family, the, the support is amazing the people you get to work with is amazing. And um, it, it, it's been so cool to, to, re, to, to be part of that community because it's not, I mean, the comics in them of themselves, I think is a really nice community in all aspects of that word. But like even inside a source point, it's such a family oriented business as far as how they do business and how they support each other and the product that they put out and the time and effort they put into it. That like I I couldn't be more happy and honored to be a part of it. Honestly, you referenced uh, Adam Ferris, the book's artist, um, and a little bit of your working relationship. Take us uh, a little a, a step further with that. What's it like working with him? What kind of give us a peek behind the curtain? What does that working relationship look like for the two of you through that process? So that it was it was really really cool. Um, he's talented, and he had I mean coming into it, he had more experience than I did, right? Um, he, he had more experience, not only as somebody who produces comics, but like in all aspects of the business too. Uh, you know, his, his, uh, nonprofit book that he put out, uh, this past year called the good fight, uh, a charity book with a lot of big names attached. I mean, he was basically the project manager on that as well as drawing stuff for it. Um, so, I mean, he, he knows the business in and out in a way that I didn't. So that was always helpful, but, um, kind of another dream come true aspect that, the, the fanboy behind the scenes getting 
to do that thing. The other thing that I write in the back matter is like when the, the, the writer, the two things, the two things, number one, I got to do that magical thing that you get to do in comics where I got to write for an artist. So like I've mentioned a couple of times, that first 32 pages is written. It's just me. But I don't start writing the second half until I'm already interacting with Adam and see what Adam can do with the story and with the characters and with his style of art that he's chosen for this story. So like when like the, in the second half of Parallel, um, I really got to there were scenes that I tweaked. There are things that I added, things that I took out that were just specifically because I knew that he was going to be able to draw the heck out of it. Right. Um, there's, there's a slightly deeper noirish feel. There are, there's a bit more emphasis on darkness and, and it goes with the story because the story does crescendo, like the tension of the story crescendos and the, the, the risk that Landon puts himself in, um, as the story goes along to try to get what he wants, his second chance in life, uh, that was naturally growing anyway, but knowing what Adam could do, I wrote for him a little bit more. And I think it really, I mean, it really kind of just comes alive in that second half. And you can see us working together. If you're like reading between the panels, if you will. Um, the other thing that he did, which happens a lot in the writer artist relationship is he becomes in a lot of ways, like a co-writer too. You know, um, if I am overwriting something, if I am trying to, because I've got to cram that story in because I am overly verbose, I don't know if you can tell this, which e with each answer I'm giving you today being like 45 minutes long, um, <laughs> there might've been, there might've been a few pages in the script that just, I mean, you know, trying to cram, trying to cram eight panels with five word balloons in each panel onto a page that really needed five panels. Do you know what I mean? And right. and he and he does that great thing that artists can do and are almost invariably right where they just they just cut it back and then they send it back to you, you go, now you deal with it, right? And and you know, once you get past that initial like precious ruffled feathers thing for half a second, you go, Oh yeah, it's way better. <laughs> and he was really, really good at that. Um I loved, I loved that thing. It's like, it's like, it feels to me like a lot of those cliches that I knew about it as a fan, but they end up being like a really magical part of the process. Like when you can sit there and you can write a thing and see it in your head and you're like, Ooh, that's good. And then somebody with this talent, with this fine motor skill talent can make this thing that you saw and thought was perfect in your head. And somehow their reality of it is better than what you saw in your head there is nothing more satisfying i think in comics than that because how, i mean how can you take something that that is because you know i mean greek philosophers always said that the perfection is in your head and anything anything out in the real world has to be less than and i saw this perfect scene in my head and somehow adam made it better that's i think that's magic so i loved working that's awesome now, uh, Parallel has a really distinctive black and white, almost like a pencil sketch kind of look to it. Uh, why go in this sort of black and white pencil sketch direction for this story? So that was two things kind of happened with that. Number one, on the base level, that was chosen for me. Okay, that was a decision that was made in editorial and above. This is this is going to be a black and white interior book. Um what kind of turns out once I knew that is it, I think it really, really, really 
plays into thematically the story is when you go black and white and this story is all about that gray area in between. I think it really plays with the themes. Um, there are parts in this book where I think about it, especially in the second half, where color would be a distraction. Um, when things get darker and darker and, and Landon gets closer and closer in the story to making some pretty monumental and final decisions about where he's going to go in his life, it is a black and white decision. And I think that plays in really well. Um, Adam also knocked it out of the park with that. He uh, experimented with some... Um, some shading and some gray wash kind of uh, techniques that he hadn't even tried digitally before and ended up working out really, really nicely. There's some, there's a lot of, um, one of the things I'm really most proud about the book is that some of the feedback that I'm getting from people who have read it is that they're, they're finding it pretty rereadable. Um, and, you know, going back and finding clues in the art and in the script that make you think about different scenes differently, especially once you read the ending upon second, maybe even third reading. And a lot of that is due to some of the things that Adam tried artistically, uh, drawing things a little bit different. And most of those clues, most of those little Easter eggs isn't quite the right word, but it's close. Um, most of those would not be clear had it been in color. It's, a, it's very much like a gray shading kind of thing. And you pick up on that subtlety um, probably only if it's in black and white. So like I end up being very, very pleased with that. It gives, it, there's a starkness to it that allows you, you can't hide. There's no hiding the themes of the book. There, there's no brightness to distract you from the bleakness of the story. And then depending on how you interpret it, maybe the light at the end of the tunnel. So I think it played really well. I totally agree with that. I don't think there's enough black and white books on the market these days. Uh, when done well, black and white books are some of my absolute favorites. I, I'm, I was a big fan of, you know, the black and white look of even The Walking Dead or something like that. So, yeah, absolutely. I agree. While we're on the topic of art, I personally am a sucker for variant covers. And uh, you've got two different variant covers that yeah. are just visually <laughs> arresting. Tell us how that happened. Well, it's funny. Um, I don't know how that happened because it's, it's not, I mean, okay, so here you go again. Um, every step of the way, like the fanboy me, right? So, so like my personal um, consumption of comics over the decades has been pretty evenly balanced. I am, I, I walk this line down the middle of 50% reader and 50% collector. And try to balance mm -hmm. those two. And I know sometimes those camps are a bit like this. And I try to walk that middle line. And um, so, like, as, 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 you know, as, as different aspects of this process popped up, it's always just thrilling to the, to the collector in me or thrilling to the reader in me or just thrilling to the comic nerd in me. And when I found out, and, and it's kind of funny, like, I found out that shops were doing exclusives, right? It, it, wasn't, it wasn't a plan from the beginning. It was shops that I had interacted with, uh, had seen the, the PDF of the book, had read it, had liked it, wanted to be supportive, liked the story and said, you know what? We're doing an exclusive variant. Um, they found the artist. Like I, I got to sit back and like let that happen to me. Do you know what I mean? Wow. Which is just, again, another kind of not always how it works, but kind of a bit of magic that I got to experience. And um, yeah, there's the uh, there's the Les Garner variant, 
the uh, the SSCO, the Sanctum Sanctorum Comics and Oddities variant, which uh, there was only a hundred of them. There's still a couple left. Those are almost gone. Which has got that beautiful. I love the colors on that cover, and it's like it's the just shattered, shattered glass. Yep. And it's you've got you've got other Landon on half of the shatters, mm-hmm. and you've got our Landon in our world on the other half, and it's you know you putting together the whole piece through the shattered pieces of glass. I love that cover. And then the sold out cover, the um, uh, the SOC variant, and then there's like a foil variant too, which is the uh, Esteban cover, which is like a a, a Donnie Darko tribute. Um, but with like right. the, the things coming, it's got the guitars coming up. The, the top, the, yeah, the guitars. Just, oh, man. Like a, I that, mean, that one, that one is just, it, it's a pretty stunning cover because it's also kind of disturbing and a creepy cover. And yes. that one. So, so again, like me getting to nerd out and, and have the things that I've always been a part of or admired about the comic industry, like just like happened to my book. So just the other day I, I get a text. Uh, saying, hey, there's a live auction going on. So you know how that one, the, the, those two variants are sold out. There's a live auction going on and the book is, is selling out like in, you know, the, the variant cover is selling out really fast for twice the price of retail. And it's like, that. Whoa, I, I'm in the <laughs> aftermarket now, you know, that kind of thing. Wow. And, and obviously it doesn't affect sales. Obviously it doesn't do anything, you know, for, for, you know, my contract or anything like that. And I couldn't care less because I'm a comic fan. And like, how exactly. cool is it? <laughs> That this, the thing you made, like somebody's like, oh, I need that for twice what the guy previously had paid for. So it just blows my mind. Um, but yeah, my book's got variant covers. Are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Most of the mainstream comic book industry focuses very much on fantastical things, even on in image comics when they don't do particularly superhero stories and that kind of stuff. They do still, you know, science fiction, fantasy, that sort of thing. Your story, on the other hand, is is very much, although it has a, a little bit of a sci-fi tinge, feels very deeply human. Why try to focus more on the real world uh, aspects instead of leaning into the fantastical in your story? I think... It's a great question because my gut says I don't I don't know if I could write something well without that in the starting point, right? I, I truly think that the most successful, like, if, even if you look at a straight up mainstream superhero book, one of the reasons why X Men became a phenomenon under Claremont. Right. So late 70s and definitely into the 80s um, is because so many at the core, so many people connected with the characters, so many people connected with what the characters might or might not be going through. Right. Um, does it have its limits, limit limitations because of the serialized nature of it, because of the business aspect of it, because of the juggernaut that is Marvel or DC and the, the apparatus that is basically has survived for 80 years because it's designed to survive for 80 years? Sure. But I think at the core, like the stuff that survives past a month or even past a week on the racks, people have got to be able to relate to it. And people relate to the stuff that is universal. Right. So like parallels all about, you know, deferred dreams. It's all about time passing and you looking and say, waking up one day and going, oh my God, that those dreams that I thought I had forever to accomplish, like that time is now gone and maybe I don't get a second chance. And now my life is this stagnant cesspool of depression and 
where did all those chances go? Now, I like a fun, dark story just as much as the next person. So the way we explore it in there is by this other version of Landon who's in this situation that so many people, I think, can relate to, right? I mean, how many of us cannot sit there and, and, and sit there and absolutely say we didn't make choices at a certain point in our life out of convenience and put off the risk or the dream because I had a bill to pay or it's easier to do this than to do this, right? And then time keeps on moving because we can't slow it down and maybe it's too late. So that's the relatability. That's the way in. The sci-fi dark twist comes when Landon's in that spot, spot that so many of us are in or have been in or can relate to. And he starts to hear the voices and he starts to hear the visions or see the visions. And it's another version of him who got to live that life and is offering him a chance that a lot of us don't get or don't feel that we can get to actually become part of that life again. But he's, he's saying you can have this if you just, and the problem is, and the darkness comes in um, and the psychological torment comes in when that just is probably not very beneficial psychologically and physically to our land and in here and now. So yeah, there's a bit of a fantastical element, but which makes it fun to read and you can read it just for that. But thematically at its core, it's, mental health it's dreams deferred it's depression it's the that that thing that we go through alone and, and feel very isolated in as individuals and yet i think just about all of us can relate to it at the same time it's universal and yet it feels so isolating um so I, i'm hoping that's kind of like one of the appeals of the book and that's some of the feedback i've been getting too all right, you 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 gave it to Dave with Stephen King, and now I get to geek out because you said Claremont and X Men. So, uh, yeah, that was our first episode was on our nerd origin story, and we had to pick three, and that was one of my three. So Claremont's X Men, that's oh, near I know, and dear to I, my heart. I'm gonna. I don't want to. I'm I'm very reluctant to say what I'm gonna say next. Uh, but if I put it out there in the world, I guess it's probably going to have to come true. I may or may not be flirting with the idea of putting together an entire Claremont X-Men run. Oh, oh man. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's yeah. very daunting. I've got a nice chunk, but there's definitely some uh, more expensive keys that I don't have. And if I say it out loud, do I have to do it? I then it's off, spoken I started, into existence. <laughs> well, I know. I start off with the kid gloves. I did. Uh, I just. I just completed my new mutants run. Uh huh. And I'm very. I cheated. On, I cheated on the '98 though. I got the facsimile edition because you want to talk. So I said at 12, it was dumb for me to just read it. Right. Even dumber. I think a year later, uh, I went down the street kid randy's house randy's like a year younger so i think i've got the upper hand <laughs> and uh i'm like randy i will trade you this comic for this comic okay one for one very straight up totally thought i was getting the better end of the deal because i traded him a new mutants 98 for a new mutants 93 now 98 there's some deadpool dude really awkwardly <laughs> positioned on the cover that nobody cares about but on 93 Wolverine is leaping at Cable's face, claws unsheathed, <laughs> and like how, like I couldn't get that one anywhere. And I was, I, I got the better end of the deal until things happened, and now I'm not willing to shell it out. So my, I got New Mutants run completed, facsimile '98. 
but I, don't, I guess I put it out there. I guess I, yeah, I spoke it into existence. So I guess it's got to happen now. So let's go Claremont. <laughs> All right. You, you referenced this um, just a bit ago, but um, the heart of this story of Parallel is how people often abandon their dreams to settle and the regret yeah. that comes with that. And that's something that while reading this personally, I had to like put my phone down as I was reading it and like, okay, I need to hang on. Let me collect myself for a minute. Even even the foreword of uh, into the book, like every paragraph, I was like, hang on. That just hit me. So um, I know that I had personal experiences that I can relate. But um, and you and I think you referenced this uh, at the beginning of the interview. But did you have anything uh, personal experiences that informed your approach to this story? Uh, all the time. I right. Like, like it's like there's like I'm thinking about it more often than I'm not. I think. I mean, I'm I'm older than you guys, and. I, I, <sighs> Every time, every time I got, you know, some arbitrary number, some age, you name it. And I hit it and I look back and like, well, what happened? What, what have I done? What have I not done? Right. And, and being in the classroom is you create this deception because the kids don't age. It's, you know, if, if you teach the same grade level for any more than a couple of years, like, like your your body's falling apart, your hair is turning gray. Your own children are growing up, and these kids are the same. You know, I taught fourth grade for thirteen years, and I didn't think I was more than ten years old for thirteen years. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it just it doesn't change. And suddenly I'm thirty, and suddenly I'm forty, and it was like, I, I what Landon's going through, I definitely acutely have felt at various points in my life, right? Um. But I'll tell you this, the catalyst, that was not the catalyst to, to start typing that summer. When I, when I said, I'm not writing a play this summer, I'm going to write a comic this summer. Um, the existential dread came from me. The general premise comes from me, but the catalyst actually came from former students. So I've been doing this long enough where I've got all these former students that are literally Landon's age right now, right? Like late 20s, pushing 30. Right. And I was in contact with enough of them. And I always, this is the one I always say, because she is always on my mind when I think about this. Like I, she reached out to me one day and she's just like, why am I in this cubicle? Why am I not in Chicago dancing? Right. Which was like, she had been talking about that since she was nine. And, and here, and you know what I mean? And, and it was right. just like Landon. It was, it was in the future, but only two steps away at 18, at 22. But you've got a bill to pay, right? You've got a loan to pay off. You've got um, a relationship that is in the here and now that if you went and pursued the dream, that relationship would end. Like, you name it, whatever life getting in the way of life is. Um, so many of us do that. And and it like it was it was it was eating away at her. And a few other students that I was still in contact with. And that was actually the catalyst because it was like, oh, I know what you're talking about. And and I think the thematic thing that I talked about to you guys earlier was every single person that I talked to about that theme with felt utterly and completely alone in it, mm -hmm. you know, because it's it's just them. Right. It's just inside their head. And yet here we are going. It was it was 100 percent connected empathy. 
because we all go through it and yet you feel so alone in it. And that was that was the um that was the the spark. That was the light switch flipping on and going, that that's what I'm gonna write about. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely it's definitely universal. I, I think uh everybody, especially once you get out of your out of your teens and into your twenties, you start really looking back and the older you get, the more it seems to just keep rolling down on you. Yeah, I mean there's that irony. There's that irony because like at that age and you can't blame us. You can't blame them at that age. Like, like the future just feels like it's forever, right? There, time seems so much more infinite. Um, and so it's, I think it's easier to set it aside, to defer the dream, because well, who cares? Who cares? It's just a month. It's just a year. I've got forever in front of me. So it's, I think it's easier to set it aside. And then when you realize how much harder it is once things get rolling and once um you know stagnation sets in or 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 the kind of um you know the apathy that can set in as you you don't flex those muscles or you don't flex those dreams anymore uh that's when the regret kicks in but it's usually after this chunk of time where it's laid dormant and and you don't there's that period of time where you don't remember that that was your thing and then when you wake up and, and, and see that it just it hasn't been, it hasn't moved even an inch forward, much less taking the big leap. I think that's where the for a lot of people the panic comes or the anxiety comes or maybe it settles into a depression. And and obviously as an individual you deal with it in different ways and everybody has their own story. But like you said, I truly think it's universal. Now parallel is extremely self-contained. One shot, sixty-four pages. Yeah. That's pretty unusual in the comic book industry when everything seems to be serialized. You want to have a mini series. Why, why just one shot? Well, I mean, it was going to be a self-contained contained story anyway. So, like, when I started page one, I mean, I thought that first 32 pages was, like, an oversized first issue and there was two more issues to go or something like that. But regardless, it would have been the one story anyway. It was Travis who kind of said, no, it's a one shot at 64 pages. And I said, yes, I can go do that. Um, part of that, I think... It is an industry thing, right? Where like, like that, I think I mentioned it earlier, like that, that 80 year old structure of Marvel and DC, for example, the infrastructure is created to create continual sales month by month by month, right? That's why books can get up into the 300s, 400s and whatever, even with all the modern reboots. But um, it's, it's a different structure. So one, I think of the beauties of indie comics is for all the struggles that indie comics have, right? It's a lot harder to get something made. It's definitely infinitely harder to get it out to people and in front of people, right? Um, there's a lot more at risk. You know, uh, a Marvel book fails, Marvel does not collapse, right? That's not the end. Whereas the vast majority of indie companies might only have that first title or that second title and then they go the way of the dodo. So for all the restrictions that indie has, there is so much more storytelling freedom. And not storytelling freedom, but just there's so much more flexibility. Because I truly believe that comics are probably the most malleable medium out there, right? They're, you can do anything in comics. They have, they have all the best things about film. They have all the best things about prose. But do things that prose and film cannot do. Um there is there isn't a story you can't tell in comics. There isn't an artistic twist 
an artistic risk that you could take in comics. There isn't one that you can't take. And even inside the comics industry, indie has more flexibility to be able to do that because there isn't a corporate apparatus attached to it that, you know, for, for, for good or for ill, the bottom line is still the bottom line, right? Um, I'm not saying there isn't love and passion in every single thing that a big company puts out because there obviously is, right? Because there's still an artist and there's still a writer and there's still an inker and there's still a letterer behind it and still an editor who cares. But it's still part of a much bigger machine. And indies, I mean, I talk about family with SourcePoint. Like you're creating something with your family because it's good and you want other people to see how good it is. And thus you have the ability to tell a self-contained story or you have ability to tell a story that is ostensibly about that universal theme. I mean, that is, it's, it's dark, but it's relatable. Um, but you're probably not getting 64 pages of, you know, uh, uh, of a mainstream book where that's what that's about. And then ending it and saying, there's not going to be any more. So I, I think it has, I think it says a lot to do with indie comics being a place where you can do that. Now, Parallel tackles a major issue that seems to be trending of late in recent years, and that's mental health. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on the increased awareness of this issue, and what are your hopes going forward? Well, I think it's great. I Like, like I mean, it, it's a relatively new thing in the human experience, right? I mean, like mental health, our modern conception of it is just a little bit over a hundred years old and the modern acceptability of it in society is a lot closer to 50, 60 years old. I mean, it is, it is a relatively new thing, at least the way we think about it. I wanted to be really careful. So in the, in the writing of the script, it, every single professional you run into in the book, right? We've got doctor, we've got psychiatrist, we've got, detective um i did not write those characters willy-nilly those were vetted and uh discussed with real life people in those professions that you know had some connection to my life and so like when when we get into those scenes where where landon is getting help and um you know it's working and then things fall apart again like all of that was discussed it's like, like how would this play out here's here's where i want it to go and like like, how would this play out? How can, you know, can you help me portray this in a way where uh, even though I need the story to get to beat, you know, D by this point, as we're moving him through that process, A, B, and C, like, I want it to be a positive portrayal. Because, like, if, if at any point, you know, we, we talk about the universality of, of having feelings like this. And, and, and I mentioned the fact that, you know, when, when you in your life have that adverse reaction to choices you made before it may manifest in some pretty serious depression right it may manifest in anxiety that could be anything from annoying to flat-out crippling and if there's a single person who reads this right and and maybe they're picking it up because they want to support indie comics. Maybe they're picking it up because they heard this and they're like, oh, that sounds cool. Maybe they're picking it up because they're a sci-fi nerd and they're like, I love it. You give me parallel parallel reality and I'm in. But if, like, if, if, if any single person reads this book and says, maybe I need to talk to somebody. 
that's a that's a huge win. That's a huge win. That's a huge victory because like like again, again this is coming back to something we mentioned before. Um, depression, regret, anxiety, any way it manifests in you. We, it's like this, it's, it's this terrible isolating experience, right? And yet, and yet there has been, there's this apparatus out there and and I'm not even necessarily talking about going in and doing the cliche of laying on a couch and talking to somebody. So if that works for you, then you go for it. But like, Mm -hmm. like if there are other people who can have empathy for you in this situation, because they've gone through their own version of it, like there are humans in your life that you can talk to and it always always help all right it's always better to not do it alone and i'm hoping that that is something that thematically through the book and depending on how you read it and we haven't really talked about this yet but like there's a lot of ambiguity in this story right Mm -hmm. and some of that is in the script and some of that is the way adam draws it and like i've gotten different feedback on how people are interpreting the ending most people lean one way, and if and if you see the ending of this book in the way that a lot of people see it, like I really, really think that one of the reasons Landon gets to the point that he gets to is because he didn't have to go through this extreme thing alone. And so I'm hoping that message portrays as well. Yeah, it's definitely. Uh, it feels like in a lot of places the story could be interpreted a number of ways, which is uh, really cool when you have a story that kind of lets you, you know think and dig into it now would you uh would you be willing to take your uh, writing to the big two eventually what would you like to write if you could pick any book from the big two well <laughs> i mean they have they have to come asking first uh <laughs> just because you know, it, the um <clears throat> the unsolicited submission rule applies whether you've written uh, uh an indie comic or not um, it is not something I'm actively seeking out, but if, if it was ever offered, I don't think I could say no. Why would I? Um, it's what I grew up on. Um, I mean, my answer is obviously X-Men, yes. but, but, but let me just tell you, like for, for all the benefits I got for being blissfully ignorant about the process, I am, um, horrifically aware of the tank of continuity and character that is the x-men universe i listened to jan miles explain the x-men like it's like it's yep. i couldn't you you know five minutes after i finished jumping up and down when the offer came through to to write a uh, anything from a title to a to a one shot or something like that i would probably melt down in an anxiety puddle of there's no way my brain or my writing ability is up to the task of navigating the absolute mess that is the tangled web of X-Men. Um, but that would be my answer. I, I think my real answer can't even be an answer because it's not a universe that I would even feel comfortable dipping my toe in. But um, in the my all-time comic book love is Neil Gaiman's Sandman. In fact, Sandman and Spiegelman's Mouse are the only two stories that followed me in my like nine year hiatus from comics where like in my mid teens, I was like, I'm done with this. And then, you know, picked it back up in in um, in my mid to late 20s. And those were like the only two stories, the only two books, the only two comics that I reread during that time. And so like Neil Sandman is like, that's my that's at the center of my heart. But I wouldn't even dare 
to be like, oh, would you like to write a little Morpheus story or something in the dreaming or something like that? Um, no, I would not because I am not worthy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm in the middle of an X-Men read through currently and yeah, you know, it's wild. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of I'm working through uh, I'm, I'm doing it a little haphazardly, but like uh, I'll read a chunk here. I'll read a chunk there. Um, and eventually I'll probably go back. I just read, you know, because I quit, I quit in the mid nineties. Mm-hmm. So I just read, I got the omnibus and I just read it for the first time, uh, age of apocalypse. And was oh, like, oh man. yeah. Right. So I quit like, right, I, like I got through executioner song as a kid and maybe a year after that, but like I was out by 95 and that's when age of apocalypse hits. Right. And I, so I had never read it before. I mean, I knew about it. I understood, um, the impact, the long-term impact it has as a story, but I had not read it until I bought the omnibus and read the whole thing straight through. It was just, this is fantastic. So I'm jumping around, but working through a lot of X-Men right now myself as well. Well, as our uh, listeners know, I was not privy to comic book shops or anything. Growing up, I had muggle parents who, mm. you know, uh, didn't really know anything to, to push me in any direction. You know, I, I watched like the X-Men animated series growing up and all the, uh, you know, Batman, the animated series and TMNT and all the stuff growing up in the nineties. But I didn't learn about comic books truly until I was like 17, 18 years old. So I didn't really start hitting it really hard until my twenties. So yeah, all of this is new to me. I just read age of apocalypse for the first time a couple of months back too. And as a, oh, a so huge, good. as, as a huge Magneto fan, Seeing him as the, like the primary protagonist, you know, it's it's so fulfilling. Well, I came. I'm 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 in a very similar boat to you. So I, um, I do not have cool parents, and uh, <laughs> I was like, here here's uh, Exhibit A. Uh, my parents are of an age where uh, my mother, as a middle teenage girl, was offered a free ticket. To go see the Beatles in Detroit, I think in 1965, and she turned it down to stay home and do that 60s teenage girl thing of uh, washing and curling her hair. So, like, <laughs> right there, that sets a tone of, um, and without having older siblings, without having nearby cousins, I didn't have the guy down the street who's like, this is what is cool. I came to just about, I came to my musical taste, my movie taste. Definitely my love of comics. I came to everything just a few years later than a lot of my peers. Mm-hmm. And so like, but to offset that, I've got like a very uh, obsessive personality. So once I did fall in love with something, I needed all of it. Right. Yep. So like uh, I fell in love with Valiant Comics in the early 90s. You know, I was still I was still reading my I've still got my Marvel subscriptions, but I fell in love with the Valiant universe in the early 90s. And so like my pull list at my local comic shop was every Valiant title. And like that was me for a few years, like riding my bike to that shop, not being smart enough to take a backpack, but like riding all the way back with the brown paper bag, uh, you know, on my handle, trying to grip the handle with the bag <laughs> there and riding all the way back. But, like I needed it all. Once I got into Valiant, I had to have all the titles. You know, once I if I was reading X-Men um, and, you know, of course, the crossover culture doesn't help with this, but I needed all the titles. Yep. But speaking of Magneto, uh, one of my great um, kind of delightful rediscoveries was like, going back and uh, reading New Mutants through for the first time. And like when Magneto becomes the headmaster, like when he becomes the good guy, 
I love that, you know, kind of started in, you know, getting that backstory in, in X-Men 200. I loved uh, benevolent Magneto more than yep. you know, ch- uh, seen chewing Silver Age Magneto, like by far. Yeah. Oh man, it's it's so great, and I'm 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 just as obsessive. You know, when I got my Marvel Unlimited subscription, I read all 800 plus issues of Amazing Spider-Man. I read all 200 plus issues of Spectacular. Yeah. So quarantine has been great for me uh, as far as reading comics. Um, So I've gone. I started. um, I read X-Men. Uncanny X-Men number one, and it didn't really vibe for me. I was like, where's all the cool characters? Okay, here's these five lamos. Um, yep. So I skipped ahead. <laughs> I, I skipped ahead to giant size X-Men in 75, um, uh-huh. and then picked it right up with the good stuff in Claremont. And now I currently am in 2008, and I picked up a bunch of titles. I didn't do New Mutants. I'm, I'm going to go back and do New Mutants. Um, oh, it's so good. It's so good. I'm going to go back and do Excalibur because... Kurt Wagner is my favorite mutant. And I was like, where did he go for all these years? And Kitty, Kitty Pride as well. So I'm going to go back and read Excalibur. But I picked up um, uh, New Mutants with Morrison in 01. I picked up uh, Whedon's Astonishing. So right now I'm in 2008 and I've got like four different titles that I'm reading currently. But yeah. Wow. Um, so Jason, what's next for you? Any projects or goals that you can tease our audience here? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I've actually kind of got uh, a new project in the pipeline. Um, I've got a, I've got a pitch ready. I've got character bios. I've done my research. I've got a story beats before issues and a complete issue one script of something that I'm really, really excited about. So that's something I need to uh, be pitching out there to source point, hopefully very soon by the end of the summer. Um, it's called uh, tentatively called Jane American. And it is, uh, it's a story. Um, and in the same way, it's a superhero story in the same way that Parallel is a sci-fi parallel world story, right? Thematically, at its core, it's about a whole bunch of other stuff, um, which dominates the storytelling. But there is this underlying theme of an individual in the story with some enhanced abilities. Uh, this story is very much dedicated to my late grandmother because it's a post-war, it's a post-war World War II story in a small town in Michigan. Um, it takes place in 1946 and it's really, really inspired not only by some of the things that my grandmother went through, but again, inspired by students of mine, right? Because one of the things that breaks my heart every year is any of my students uh, that are in a minority of any kind, whether it be race or gender or, uh, you know, identification or religion and even in the 21st century, having to deal with still being made, even in subtle ways or not so subtle ways, other or less than. And then taking it back to a much more extreme time in 1946, um, when w- what I've got is this story of this young lady, this 15 year old girl named after my grandmother, who, when her father dies in 1942, um, the trauma of that event uh, spurs on that extra ability okay we're talking about strength we're talking about speed we're talking about senses and her mother is now supporting the family her 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 brother and her but when all the soldiers come back from world war ii all those rosie the riveter jobs are gone and they have no way to support the family but she has these abilities she could do the work of 10 of those guys but she's in the closet about it 
just like so many people uh, in the history of our country are kind of closeted about being slightly different in any way, right? And so the story kind of plays out about her interacting and, and getting a job in this factory. And I think one of my favorite things about putting the story together was um, I got to base it on a lot of reality. Not only, you know, that kind of historical context of post-World War II, but most of the story takes place in this factory, which is a real-life factory in Plymouth, Michigan, where my great-grandfather worked during World War II. And it was one of those kind of factories where uh, they converted it for the war effort, right? So it was a wire factory um, called Wall Wire. And they converted it into a place that made Marsden mats. Marsden mats are these long strips of metal that became the temporary runways in Europe and the Pacific. So you could like make a runway in the middle of the jungle if you needed you to get your planes on and off the ground. And it actually was one of only two factories in the United States, uh, one in Alabama and this one in Michigan that got to hang on to that contract in the post-war years and keep making these Marsden mats um, because they were eventually used in the Berlin airlift and other efforts like across, to rebuild Europe. And so, like, I actually had a great-grandfather who worked in there, um, and, like, my family was kind of from this area. And so we've got this story about this young girl who is struggling with the fact that she is thought of less than in 1946 America, not only because she's female, but the thing that makes her even more than she's got to hide as well. Because it's not like, you know, if, if, if you go out there, it's, it's that superhero story where, or that superpowered story where... Uh, they are other, right? Uh, they are the extreme minority, right? So a little bit of hint of X-Men in there too, right? Mm-hmm. Where um, if you presented the fact that you were a 15-year-old girl and you could lift a tractor above your head, uh, as much as we love our superhero tropes, that's going to be ostracized, picked apart in a lab, or, out, or flat out killed before uh, they become the hero that we all kind of worship in, in the four-color comics. So it's a lot about that. So I'm pretty excited about that one. Um, working on that right now, uh, kicking around a couple of things with uh, with a buddy of mine, and uh, um, we'll see where that goes. Well, that sounds really exciting. As we're winding down our interview, and this has been definitely one of one of our favorite uh, opportunities we've had to sit down and speak to somebody on our podcast so far. Uh, how can people who want to read Parallel actually get a hold of your book? Easy peasy. So like, right, it has never been easier. So obviously, the last four months have been pretty nuts for. Uh, the world and for comics, you know, the world in general, the comics specifically, right? Um, but right now, it is pretty much available uh, in three very, very easy ways. Uh, there is a decent chance, because Diamond is up and running again, that Parallel might be in your local comic shop, right? So you walk in there, you check the shelf, you go to the indies, you go under P, you find out if there's other source point books in there, might be on the shelf. It would be there today. Um, if they don't have it... Uh, Diamond and SourcePoint will do refulfillment orders for you. So all you've got to do is walk into your shop if you want to support brick and mortar, which I recommend you do. You walk in there and say, hey, will you order this book for me? And they're like, what book would you like? You can mention Jason Douglas. You can mention SourcePoint. You can mention Parallel. But the easiest way to do it is you give them that Diamond order code, which is really easy to remember. All you got to do is say, I would like, and it's FEB20-1983. I remember that because that's when Empire's, or I'm sorry, that's when Return of the Jedi came out. Uh, so FEB 20, 1983, and that'll get you a copy of it. And then if that doesn't work, if you can't get to your LCS, if your LCS is closed because of precautions, if you live too far away, super, super easy. Um, www.sourcepointpress.com. 
you go to the link in the store and you order it from them and they will ship it to you at a very reasonable price. So there's are three easy ways to get it. And uh, if anybody, so there's a couple of variants left too of that really beautiful Les Garner variant. There's a couple of those. You go and um, seek me out on Instagram and that's really easy to find. That's just at J Douglas Writes. Come over and say hello. Come over and ask questions. I'm very accessible there. I'll always write you back. Um, give me a follow, but there's a direct link in my bio, not only to the SourcePoint website, if you want to order the regular cover um, and read the book, but those last few copies of the Garner variant, I've got a direct link in my bio there for you as well. Jason, we thank you so much for your time. This has been a fantastic interview. Um, you mentioned your Instagram at jdouglaswrites. Any other social media or any else, any other things you want to plug? Oh, no, that's it. I mean, I'm, uh, you guys know I'm a teacher, so uh, I am uh, very social media shy. Uh, so my, my Instagram account is how I reach out to the comics community, and that's all I'm going to do. Uh, teachers, be wary of social media. You make one mistake, and let's not even get into that. To that. But, <laughs> yeah, check me out on Instagram, um, accessible by email, too, if you've got something you need to send me, and that's just jasondouglaswrites at gmail.com. But those are the two ways you can get in touch with me. And uh, I will definitely, definitely get back at you. Gentlemen, I got to tell you, this has been a blast. Because not only did you ask fantastic, like, deep questions, you let me nerd out about comics, too, which makes me so happy. <laughs> That's what we what do here every week. Balance, it's mutual, man. It's mutual. <laughs> oh, I loved it. This was so much fun. Thank you so much for having me on. All righty, next up, we have our weekly nerd commendations. Stick around. And we're back. Chris, it is nerd commendation time. What do you have for our listeners this week? We have a historic day, ladies and gentlemen. This is my first nerd commendation that is not a comic book series. I'm shocked, I tell you. I'm shocked. <laughs> but in my defense, during quarantine, that's all I've done is read comics. So I have a lot to recommend. Um, but my nerd commendation comes from Netflix. Uh, this week, and it is the film Extraction, starring Thor himself, Chris Hemsworth. Um, and not that's not the only MCU tie. It's also um, co-written um, by the Russo brothers themselves. Joe and Anthony Russo did the screenplay on this, and it's based on the graphic novel that they co-wrote with Andy Parks um, called Ciudad. Now that this it varies a little bit as as you are wont to do when you're developing you know, film and TV uh, from, you know, books. Um, that takes place in Paraguay. This takes place in Southern Asia, in India and Bangladesh. Um, and I'm reading the synopsis on IMDb right here. Tyler Rake, a fearless black market mercenary, embarks on the most deadly extraction of his career when he's enlisted to rescue the kidnapped son of an imprisoned international crime board. So, I mean, this is... Every, like, testosterone-fueled um, action movie dream that you could ever have. Um, it's so fantastic. And I was, you know, obviously, um, Chris Hemsworth and I are actually twins. We're just three years apart. We are both Thor. We shared the exact same birthday, just three years apart. Uh, our mother went through a hellacious labor for three years until I came out. No. Um, so, you know, Hemsworth is one of my favorite people. So in Hollywood, so I definitely wanted to check this out. 
and it did not disappoint. And I was, you know, I was concerned that, you know, outside of MCU, I haven't really seen a lot of his work outside of 2009 Star Trek, his little snippet as Kirk's father. Um, so I was interested to see, you know, so many actors when it comes to such an iconic role, they get typecast and, you know, it's hard to grow beyond that. I was like, can he do this? And if you love like Jason Bourne films or Bond films or, or things of that nature, Mission Impossible, this is right up your alley. This is such a fun film. And the overarching thing that I came away with watching this movie, Dave, you remember the first season of Daredevil. I forget the episode. Um, when he has that iconic hallway fight scene. One of the greatest fight scenes I've ever seen. Yes, absolutely. That's basically this entire movie. You have that single pan camera shot going through so many scenes of this movie that it's just like, oh my God. Like I had to like pause it and just like, because my adrenaline, my heart was palpitating out of my chest. So it's so action packed and it's so visually stunning to watch. And then, you know, the acting, um, Admittedly, there's a lot of actors that are foreign film stars that I had no previous experience with. Um, Hemsworth, I can't say enough about his portrayal. It's so wonderful. But I'm, I'm going to try the pronunciation on this. But uh, Rudraksh Jaiswal um, plays the young boy that he is trying. His, his character of Ovi is the boy that he's trying to rescue. And it's so like human. It's so deep in the connection that he has with him um uh with tyler rake's character and then um golshifta farahani she's an iranian actress and she plays kind of the the ops person um here in this film as nick um and she is fantastic um in her own right as as a like a a a bad a girl uh in charge so um just can't say enough about how action-packed this was um really truly enjoyed it i'm really glad to hear you enjoyed it i have this movie sort of on my radar but i've not watched it yet so this recommendation uh comes at a great time i might actually check that out later today um i'm a big fan of hemsworth myself i think his thor is absolutely pitch perfect so uh seeing him in another role would be really exciting i'm definitely going to be checking that out now if you're also i i forgot to mention if you're a fan of david harbour's work i know he's big with stranger things fans um hellboy not so much it was not as well received um but i'm excited to see him uh in the upcoming black widow film he has a great couple of scenes in this film so david harbour cameo is great in a couple scenes in here as well um dave what is your nerd commendation for this week i'm gonna stay traditional and go straight for the comic book uh so this time i would like to uh, recommend the dc comics black label book uh for those of you that don't know the black label uh is a label of dc comics specifically for mature titles so this is not exactly an all ages kind of book however i thought it was still worth talking about uh, the book is Harleen by, and I hope I don't butcher his name, Stepan Sejic. Uh, he has been uh, on my radar as an artist for a long time uh, due to his contributions to uh, Witchblade. Um, he was the artist on Witchblade in an era of that particular book, which uh, may stand as my favorite. And I've read the entire series, so uh, that is saying something. This particular book, as the title suggests... Uh, is about Harley Quinn. He uh, both wrote the uh, book and did the art for it. And it is basically an origin story of Harley Quinn. Uh, it is a three-issue uh, limited series. Uh, 
that basically focuses on Harley as a psychiatrist. Um, she is a, a young psychiatrist with a theory that when a person is stuck in fight or flight over prolonged periods of time, that it damages the areas of the brain responsible for empathy. And she is wanting to do research in this area. Um, she is uh, not very well respected in her field, however. Uh, as a uh, psychology student, she had a affair with a professor. Uh, so that has uh, sort of labeled her uh, as a professional. Ultimately, she is actually uh, funded. Her research is funded by Bruce Wayne, who is, uh, of course, trying to help find a cure for people uh, that become super criminals like the Joker. And ultimately, that is what brings her to Arkham Asylum. Um, the entire second issue is nothing but her interactions with the Joker, her interviews, um, and how he sort of gets into her head, ultimately. Uh, so the, the writing on it is very sharp. The art, which is digitally created, is fantastic. It's very um, evocative. Uh, there is a version of Harvey Dent and eventually Two-Face in this book that is a fantastic portrayal of that character. So I'm a, I'm a very big fan of this book. I really only have one criticism of this book, and that is uh, the visual design of the Joker. I've always felt that the, the notion of the Joker, who was a pretty cr grotesque figure, being able to essentially seduce his psychiatrist through, through mind games was, was a, a fascinating story. Uh, in this particular tale, though, uh, Joker is... is He's all those things. He's manipulative, and he, he gets into her head and all that. But uh, the way he, he is interpreted visually is, well, he, he's also attractive. It's sort of hot Joker syndrome. And, and that's the only thing that took me aback a little bit. Other than that, I think it is one of the definitive portrayals of, of Harley Quinn. Um, and that is saying something, considering that her origin story, as told by Paul Dini, her creator in the book Mad Love, uh, is one of my all-time favorites. But I have to say this was a fantastic, highly recommended book. Again, for mature readers, so that is something to keep in mind. Uh, there is a healthy dose of language and violence here. But as a fan of the Harley Quinn character, uh, I, I really, really enjoyed this book. And ultimately, I was thrilled to see that her look in this book, when she finally does become Harley Quinn, is in fact a jester, which is the definite iconic Harley Quinn look in my... Alright, Dave, so I'm a uh, HBO Max subscriber, and I'm trying to get my subscriptions worth, and um, despite many protestations, I tried Suicide Squad. Oh, oh you poor get... man, what were you thinking? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I immediately went back to Game of Thrones right after. In your opinion, as a well-versed DC fan, what went wrong with Suicide Squad, and how was it, as far as their depiction of Joker, I'm assuming, what did they do wrong in Suicide Squad, and what did they do right here? Suicide Squad is a, is a topic that we could spend uh, easily an episode talking about. I think, ultimately, the movie that they were trying to make was a fairly dark movie. And then the success of Guardians of the Galaxy essentially made the studio ask for a Guardians of the Galaxy kind of movie, something more lighthearted, something uh, music heavy, and ultimately trying to turn 
Suicide Squad into Guardians of the Galaxy, I think, was to the great detriment of that um, particular movie. Now, as far as the portrayal of the Joker goes, uh, Jared Leto's Joker might be my least favorite portrayal of the character. And I don't think there's a lot in common between Jared Leto's Joker and the Joker in Harleen. Uh, the Joker in Harleen is not, you know, this this strange crime boss. I, I don't even know quite what Jared Leto was going for with his interpretation. But the Joker in Harleen feels, despite the visual design, very much like the classic traditional Joker. You know, he's very smart, uh, he, he's clever, he's funny, he's manipulative. There's a great opening scene in the first issue where he has a confrontation with Batman, uh, which is just reads like classic directly from any other DC comic book. The book Harleen seems to try to distill the character of Harley Quinn to her essence and does an extremely good job at that. And in doing so, uh, definitely touches on, on the quintessential Joker, I think. All right, ladies and gents, that wraps up another week's episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. Thanks for coming in. Um, as always, you can find this podcast every Monday morning on your podcast feeds, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, or even our website, nerdbyword.com. Yes, and uh, please be sure to uh, follow us on social media. We are, we are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, and there you can always find some uh, interesting nerd-related posts as well as the newest news about what we are up to. And a cheap plug here at this point, uh, if you would like to head on over to thenerddaily.com, you will find an article that I wrote there about uh, the television series Batwoman, uh, which I think uh, listeners of this podcast might enjoy. All right, thanks, ladies and gents. Stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd by Word is produced by two nerds, Chris and Dave, to encompass all aspects of the nerd multiverse. The theme music was written by Al Jimenez. Our show art features original art by Ashby Design, as well as public domain comic panels. Find us online at nerdbyword.com, on Twitter at nerdbyword, and send questions and comments to nerdbyword at gmail.com.